If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This case was exceptional in Iceland. There, there had been very few murder cases, uh, I think maybe one murder a year at the most, and always cases of domestic violence. So the police themselves would say they were completely out of their depth. They'd not seen anything like this before. That was Dylan Howitt discussing a major murder investigation in Iceland in the 1970s. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Next Monday, the 14th of August, BBC4 will be broadcasting a documentary entitled Out of Thin Air, which tells the story of the disappearance of two men in Iceland in 1974. It led to one of the most dramatic investigations in the country's history, and even now questions remain to be answered. The film's director is Dylan Howitt, and he spoke to our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your film Out of Thin Air considers two disappearances in Iceland in uh, 1974 um, and then the subsequent investigation into six young people who were suspected um, of these disappearances. Perhaps you could just start by introducing us to Iceland in the early 1970s. I mean, Iceland in the 1970s was sort of going through huge changes. Um, It had been a tremendously poor and kind of isolated country in a disconnected kind of cold place stuck up there in the in the north atlantic and also quite um not many people uh, i think about in 74 there's probably about 215,000 people in total um Reykjavik was quite a small town 85,000 odd people um and it was a tremendously homogenous place as well in terms of the population you know descendants of vikings and celts and little else um and it had been basically run by the by the Danes for quite a while. They only they only won their independence in nineteen forty four. So um it is this like like I say quite a quite an isolated place, but it, it was it had it was suddenly going through these great changes because in the Second World War, Britain had actually occupied or had a base there, not occupied, but had a base there, um 
in the, in the sort of, I think about 43, 44. And then the Americans came with a base and they built, built an airport. And suddenly money was coming to Iceland and they, they, they went from being a very poor country to actually being relatively wealthy in Europe in a very short period of time. So society was changing greatly um, over this period. And it, also it's worth saying, and this is something that Iceland always say to you, that it's, it's a, it was a very rural society and still is. They always say, you know, Icelanders are just farmers and fishermen. In amongst this uh, this very rural kind of community, then you introduce us in your film to this uh, kind of more liberal hippie scene that was happening around the world, but also happening in Iceland and Reykjavik as well. It was a, quite a small scene, I, I think. It was only really in Reykjavik and Keflavik, partly because of the American base and, and the music that was coming in through there. And there was actually a, a TV station and a radio station run by the Americans that locals could get and, and so they were starting to hear music from the outside world and there was starting to be bands formed icelandic bands and the sort of sm very small scene developing and then also drugs coming in for the first time so sort of marijuana lsd was starting to come in um, and p people describe it as always having a little bit of a lag from the rest of europe so the sort of 68 big ruptures in, in europe didn't come to iceland for a few years i, th I don't think so it's it really that then in the early 70s that you started to get get that happening. And I think that the, that was quite a threat to the older generation from what people told me as I was making the film. And then within this community, um, the, the country's kind of rocked by um, these disappearances. First one that's a bit more innocuous and then the second, which kind of um, links the two and, and leads to one of the biggest investigations in Icelandic history. Um, can you perhaps introduce us to the, the disappearances? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, the, the first one um, was a man named Gudmundur Einarsson. And in, in January 1974, he'd, he'd gone out drinking with some friends at a nightclub in Hafnafjordor, which is close to uh, Reykjavik. And um, he'd left the club in the middle of a snowstorm, actually, saying he was walking back home to his, his home near Reykjavik. And he was seen by a couple of people um, walking home. Some people saw him with another guy. Other people saw him on his own. And that was the last he was seen. And so that made the news... Um, and that there were there was there were searches for him, but it was never thought of as suspicious because that had happened before in in the past in Iceland that people had just kind of got lost. It's a you know it's quite a brutal landscape if anyone who's been there, and and weather as well. It, the weather can turn you know very quickly, so it wasn't thought of as suspicious. But later that year there was a second disappearance, a guy called Gerfin Einarsson, no relative, um, did um, but that did seem suspicious, and this was a man who. Um, had been so the, 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 what we know of his last movements he'd gone to this um, his local cafe in Keflavik harbour um, and had just sort of been waiting around it seemed like he was waiting for someone he'd been seen there and then he'd gone home and he'd received this strange phone call where, where he was heard to say oh I've been there already I'll come back I'll come back and he drives back to the cafe he leaves his car and then he just disappears so clearly he was there going to meet someone um, and there was some witnesses who saw somebody in the cafe making a phone call at the same time that Gerfiner got his phone call. So the, the phone call was made from the cafe to Gerfiner's house. Um, but and that was that was it. So that that second disappearance really made the news, and it really caught the public imagination. And 
the media really whipped that up as well. So who, you know, who was this man? Who was this mystery man who made the phone call that Gerfner was going to meet? And you know, the police immediately thought this was an, a murder or, or, or something suspicious. They, even, they they called it a murder investigation quite quickly. They called a press conference that went out on TV. Um, and and immediately people were talking about, you know, what had happened and, you know, and it kind of spiraled from there, really. And and how was it that the two disappearances then came to be linked uh, by the media, by the police? Well, that's that's um, a mis- quite a mysterious question. At the time, they weren't. So um, uh, in 1974, they weren't c- connected by anyone. Um, we kind of rounded up and, and first confessed to being involved in Goodmunder's disappearance, that, that they... The police then started asking about the Gerfin dis- uh, disappearance as well, and so and, and the police have never given a really good reason why they made that connection. Why they suddenly started switching? Why do they switched from one to the other? Um, they say that the 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 five guys, uh, four four guys and a, and a woman, started t- talking about Gerfin. They just just started speaking about him. Um, the defendants or the the accused say that the police started talking about it so that that's uh in dispute so, so there's these uh five characters who are who are um arrested in on suspicion of um under suspicion of being involved in the disappearance of Gubmundur. so so that, i mean there's this kind of couple at the heart of the of the film and of the story really which is um a man named Saiva Sisielski and his girlfriend Atla Bolodotir and um Siver was a, a kind of a known petty criminal. He was known by the police. He, uh, he smuggled marijuana for a living. Um, he also was involved in petty thievery. And he was kind of surrounded by this group that was seen at the time as kind of a group of thugs, all of whom were involved in kind of petty crime and, and some, I think one of them had been involved in a, an assault and things like that. Um Siva's a really interesting character. He was quite an easy person to kind of scapegoat in a way and quite an easy person to target, um, partly because, well, everyone says he was a very charming guy and he's a good-looking guy. Um, but he was kind of surrounded by these thugs, these, these, uh, this, it, it, almost like bodyguards or something. And he was quite charismatic and quite controlling, it seemed. And he never seemed, even though he sold drugs, he was never involved in drugs. So, um, So that was part of why he was given this kind of almost Man- Charles Manson-esque kind of, um, that's how he was given this kind of label almost of the, that he was this charismatic controlling figure. Um, and, and his, anyway, his girlfriend, uh, Ertler was the, was the one who, um, was f- the first to confess about the Gummender case. And they were all involved loosely in the hippie scene at the time. I think by, by kind of mainstream, Icelanders, they were probably seen as kind of low lowlifes, you know, people who didn't really work for a living, people who were involved in petty crime, um, people who took drugs, perhaps, things like that. So your film um, investigates then how these people were uh, linked by the police to these disappearances and deals with their confessions. You investigate thoroughly in the film how these confessions were um, unreliable. Could you talk a little bit about that? So this is when when the case starts to get really mysterious because um, ostensibly when Ertler and Siva are arrested, it's for another crime that they'd committed together, which was uh, the embezzlement of a post office. 
after some days of being in custody, Ertler is questioned about the Goodmunder disappearance, quite out of the blue, it seems, about a week into the custody. She's in, she's questioned about that. And um, she she says she knows nothing about it. Um, but they um, but she does know Goodmunder. She had met him before. And so the police kind of hone in on that. And they say, we, we, we think you know something about this. You know, you, if you know this guy, you really need to, to think. And so she's, she's put back in the cell and she's... She's thinking back to that that um, weekend when he when he disappeared. She was living in the same town at the time, and she she remembers that she'd had this very strange nightmare that night he disappeared. So she relates that to the police, and the police become quite excited and quite convinced that this relates to the disappearance of Goodmunder. So they hold her still for for longer and they question her further, and eventually she confesses, and this is the first confession in, in the case that she saw Siver and Christian, one of his friends, and another guy carrying what looked like a body in a sheet um, standing in her bedroom door. She, she witnessed them going past the door. And that's the kind of beginning of the story in a way. And then, then I think the, the following day, Siver confesses that he was involved in uh, the killing of Gurmandaj and that, that, that they wrapped his body in a sheet. And then a further two people confess the same. So how did these disappearances um, and the the scale of this investigation compare with cases that the police force had dealt with before? I mean, this, this case was exceptional in Iceland. Um, there, there had been very few murder cases, uh, I think maybe one murder a year at the most, and always domestic, or, you know, it was, was cases of domestic violence. So the police themselves would say they were completely out of their depth, They'd, They'd not seen anything like this before. There had been a murder of a taxi driver in 1973 that had not been resolved. So that was a strange something that had happened recently. But beyond that, this wasn't anything that the police had any experience of at all. And that's still, by the way, the same to this day. That the, uh, Iceland has an extraordinarily low rate of homicide in comparison to the rest of the world. And so we then see this, the, the scale is then reflected in the media response. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the media treated the case and treated the suspects as well? The media reaction was huge. And it, it, the timing of the case was important because tabloid journalism had just emerged in Iceland in the sort of mid-70s. And there was about, I think, five or six dailies in Reykjavik that were all competing. And so this story... Um, was great fodder for them. So it made the front page for months and it was lots of different um, theories and ideas about what had happened. Initially it was about what had happened to Gervina and all kinds of theories about that. But later it became about the people who had been arrested and who they were and, and it, it was a lot of people have said this was trial by media you know that, that, that these obviously it was these guys you know they were well known within the Iceland, Icelandic population as I mentioned it was a very small population everyone kind of knows everyone everyone's somewhat related so everyone kind of knew who these people were and it was quite an easy assumption to make that they were uh, they were guilty you mentioned the trial by media um, and you also mentioned the comparisons that were made to um, Charles Manson. Um, what were the comparisons that were drawn and how do you think it captured public imagination in the same way? This is kind of touches on what I was saying earlier, which is um, 
really about Sai versus Elsky himself and how easy it was to scapegoat him. And it's it's partly because, you know, he was this quite a small man, very, very short guy, I think maybe five foot four, five foot five, with these quite big guys around him. So he, it's like, how how can he control these guys? We know what's what's going on here. And also the fact that he didn't use drugs himself, but he sold drugs. So there's always this sense that he was this quite charismatic and look also women liked him a lot you know Adler wasn't his only girlfriend he was very uh, he, he drew people to him he had this um, huge lack of respect for authority he was a f- very unusual person within Iceland I think even at the time so I think that was perhaps why it was quite easy to see him as a kind of controller or a kind of ringleader of this of this gang uh, so the remarkable thing about these uh, confessions um, is how unreliable they were found to be um, as the prisoners were kept in um, isolation or possibly tortured as well. Um, can you talk about how you explored that in your film? There's a whole series of confessions relating to these two disappearances. When I first sort of approached the story obviously I wanted to find out as much as I could about it and I read everything I could and I went back as much as possible to sort of primary source and um, the, the, the great bulk of that source is, are these confessions and there are literally thousands and thousands of pages of court documents of these whole series of confessions relating to the two disappearances and what's striking is that the confessions keep changing and not just not just Ertler's confession that's changing but it's the others as well and and so it's it's quite hard to get a handle actually on what the hell's going on with it and it's only really later in the case I think a year into the investigation that they start to kind of all the all the all the confessions start to line up the police are having a really hard time sort of you know getting a viable case that they can actually bring to court and so at a certain point in in um I think it's in the summer of 1976. They bring in this super cop, this this investigator from uh, from Germany, um, called Karl Schutz, and he, he's a well-known figure who was involved in, for example, in the investigation of the Baden-Meinhof gang in Germany. But he's retired now. But he but he comes to Iceland to help the police and sort of more or less takes control of the investigation. And um, it's it's after he arrives that that the the, the sort of confessions start to line up and start to be more coherent and it's some months after he's arrives that he he calls a press conference and and says we've solved the case and um the nightmare is over is the famous quote that the the justice minister said at the time and so at what stage then do these confessions um start to be questioned it was actually quite soon after the guilty verdict that a couple of the defendants or the convicts at that point um, start to question them and start to say, you know, actually that these were um, coerced confessions. It's all quite troubling. It's it's all a bit um, disorientating. In fact, you know, one of the things that's so striking about this story is, is when you really look into it, when you really drill into it, is the absence of facts. And, and maybe that's good for a history program, but you know, it's, it's, um, if you, so, for example, with the first guy who disappeared, you know, we know that he went to the club. We know that he was seen afterwards walking walking home, maybe with someone, maybe not. And that's it. After that, there's absolutely nothing. There's no body, nothing at all. 
And with the second guy, similarly, we, we know that there was this, he went to the cafe, he went back to the cafe, left his car, he had this strange phone call. But once he, once he left his car, no one saw him. There's no witnesses. There's no material evidence. Um, so again, nothing. So, so what's so striking is the absence of facts and the volume of speculation just so and it seems to me there's such a such a human thing in a way in, in this when you have this all this all these gaps all this kind of space this dark void you need to we need to fill it as humans i think and we just, we fill it with stories and so all these stories start to emerge that whether it's the gossip at the time or whether it's the stories that came out of the inter police interrogations they're all just stories and, and that's and that's why, in a way, we called it out of thin air. It seemed seems appropriate somehow. It's a, it, it, the whole thing it felt like a giant projection screen. As one of the images I had during the film, during the filming, was in a cinema screen, a blank cinema screen, which onto which we project. And so these hippie characters were the perfect vehicle for that. They were the perfect scapegoat for us to project onto all our fears and fantasies of what maybe happened, and maybe it did happen. We, we, I can't say they didn't, didn't, did or didn't do it. And actually, that isn't what the film is about in the end. It's not really about innocent or guilt, innocence or guilt, because because of this lack of facts, we can't really say either way. But um, it, I think we can say for sure that there was a miscarriage of justice in terms of the way the police handled the investigation. That's for sure. Uh, there's a figure in your film, um, Gisley Gudjonsson, who refers to memory distrust, which is what the um, suspects were uh, are thought to perhaps have. Can you talk a little bit about what this memory distrust is thought to be? Gisley thinks five of the six uh, convicts have what he, what he calls a memory distrust syndrome, which is basically when people come to doubt their own memories of what happened to the to the extent that they sign confessions. I haven't seen that many other stories where this many people have suffered from a memory distrust syndrome. Um, so uh, when you were creating this film, what did you find may have happened to these people that may have led to memory distrust? This was one of the things that, you know, people got, sort of say to me, you know, is it, how can it be possible that people would confess to something like this if they didn't do it or, or even how would, how is it possible that they would have a memory of something that they didn't do? And that was a big question as we were making the film to sort of try to understand that. And, and especially um, Gisley Grunson's ideas of, of memory distrust syndrome sort of came into play. Gisley is a world leading expert on false confession. I mean, he's an expert witness in the case of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six and many other cases around the world. So he's... He's looked very deeply into sort of police interrogation techniques, and he he's talks a lot about sort of how the these false confessions can happen and false memory can happen, and the circumstances under which they, it can happen. So, for example, extended periods of isolation, um, presumption of guilt, or very persuasive interrogation techniques high of high emotional intensity. So. It's prolonged, persuasive, repeated inter interview, in, uh, police interviews that can really break people down. Could you talk a little bit about how the case is viewed in Iceland today and kind of what the legacy is within the national consciousness? One, one of the reasons why this case still endures is it's, it's the dark mystery. It's, it's unsolved. So nobody knows what happened to Goodman and nobody knows what happened to Gefner. 
so that's that's the first thing but but then after that it's what happened to these six people who were arrested there's a sort of dark irony at the heart of this which is that at the time people thought that that this, this you know murderous gang symbolizes the loss of Icelandic innocence somehow but actually the loss of innocence was what the kind of mass hysteria that was that, cre- that was created at the time enabled this quite terrible police abuse of power so so there was a, the lack the loss of innocence was was actually what happened next i, I always think that's a really kind of great crazy thing about this it's the witch hunt you know it's a, that's the darkest thing of the story really That was Dylan Howitt speaking to Eleanor Evans. Out of Thin Air will be aired on BBC4 on Monday the 14th of August at 10pm. And it will be available on BBC iPlayer after that. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Well, now it's time for this week's history news with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. Around 20,000 items have been uncovered during the dredging of Portsmouth Harbour, many of which date back several centuries. More than 3 million cubic metres of sediment were removed during the process. Among everyday items such as shoes, pipes, bottles and plates, some more unusual discoveries were made, including 36 anchors, 8 cannons, an aircraft engine and a human skull thought to date back to the Napoleonic Wars. Five bombs and a German mine were also found on the seabed. Major disruptions were caused as they were removed to be detonated out at sea. In other news, a stash of aeronautical engineering drawings, discovered by accident, will be used to rebuild a World War II mosquito plane. More than 20,000 of the technical diagrams were found in a factory shortly before its demolition. Stored on microfilm cards, the plans include the only complete set of drawings of the mosquito in existence, as well as several design ideas that were scrapped. There are currently only three of the planes, known as the Wooden Wonder, still in working condition. 
The newly discovered plans have been donated to a charitable body that intends to restore the shell of a mosquito which crashed in 1949. Ross Sharp, the project's engineering director, said that the discovery of the plans would help combat a, quote, lack of information on the building techniques, materials, fittings and specifications for the aircraft, as well as helping his team to better understand the workings of its engineers. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that the August edition of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's issue includes pieces on Passchendaele, the history of witchcraft, the partition of India, and the medieval Black Prince, among other things. Look out for it in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. Well, we've now come to the end of today's episode, but please do come back for Monday's podcast when we're going to be talking about the history of witchcraft. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.